Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 135, and we're going to be interviewing Ron S. How are you doing today, Ron? I'm doing wonderful. It's actually my belly button birthday today. So, uh, belly button birthday. Yeah. I've never heard that term before. Well, you know, we have recovery birthday or a birthday and a birthday, and then we have the belly button birthday. So, uh, the day I I was brought into the world. So, I'm excited about it. And I get to learn something new every day. So there you go. That's my new fact for the day. So let's get started. Let's go where I always start with everyone else. And tell me about your childhood and growing up. What was that like? Well, so um, I was one of seven children. Uh, Oh, big family. Yeah, big family, big Polish Catholic family. Brought up, born in Belleville, Michigan, which is kind of down in the suburb of uh, kind of the Detroit area on 20 acres. And, um, uh, you know, mom stayed at home. Dad was a bricklayer contractor, you know, uh, uh, worked hard uh, and drank hard. So my dad was a, was an alcoholic. But my childhood, I don't remember him drinking that much. Um, uh, but it was, it, was a, it was a good childhood. I remember doing lots of you know, lots of sports and, and lots of fun stuff. And uh, it was good. I, I you know, grew up in the 70s, kind of, I remember. And uh, it was it was good. I, I don't remember a whole lot of bad stuff about growing up until I probably got into my teenage years as as things started to kind of progress. But uh, um, as time went on, you know, I got along with pretty well most all my brothers and sisters. And then 1978, we moved up to the west side of the state but before that i remember um when things kind of changed i remember like 1977 i we were on a job site with my dad and my other brothers and um i think my dad tried to stop drinking try to stop drinking he went into dts and uh i remember as a kid just watching him seize up uh, uh and it was just so shocking as a as a young a young guy because there's certain times in your in your life that things have changed. And I remember just being worried about my dad. I must have been, I was 11 years old. And I remember just being so shocked and the ambulance came. And and like a few days after that, I remember him like hallucinating and telling us he was seeing stuff. And I just remember as a kid, that was a time that things had changed. Um, and, you know, alcoholism kind of was something that I knew something wasn't right in the family. And, uh, and that was like about, about when I was about 11. Um, so then we moved up, you know, this was back in 78. My dad was a bricklayer, a contractor. People so real quick, going back, what happened during that episode when your dad was done with the DTs? What happened? Did you, was there like a family talk about this or what happened? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. So there wasn't really a talk about it that we had. I mean, he didn't go into treatment or anything like that. Uh, you know, I was being 11. It really was my mom didn't go to Amazon yet at that time. And, um, we figured he was going to try to stop, but I think he, uh, if I remember correctly, he stopped for a while, but I think he started drinking off and on again. And um, so, no, there really wasn't any, any mention of it, you know, but I just remember that was kind of a turning point or, you know, it, as a kid, I started to worry more about my, about my dad and this drinking. That must have been scary at the time. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a really scary time um, in that time. So, so 
in 78, you know, for many people are old enough to remember times were kind of tough uh, economically, you know, interest rates were high, so people weren't really building. Um, so, you know, jobs are tough. So my dad decided to get out of that masonry contracting building and he decided to move up to Whitehall, Michigan, which for Michigan people, you know, this is where we lived here. And we went up to this side or I don't know how you guys can see it. We decided to buy a uh, gas station liquor store trailer park because uh, that makes a lot of sense uh, <laughs> for him at the time. Um, but, you know, it, it was, you know, ways that things would come in. So we bought that. And that's when my dad's um, drinking really got out of uh, control. I remember him going to VTs a lot of times. And about four of us moved up there. Some of us stayed back in because my brothers and sisters were older. My sister was, my oldest sister got married, my other sister was married, and uh, an older brother was already gone. So four of us moved up into this uh, store, gas station, liquor store, trailer park, and um, and things started to, uh, the dysfunctional family got really bad, you know. My mom had left a couple times and came back and drinking in the liquor store, and and I became, started becoming a teenager and just feeling uh you know, like everyone kind of knew my dad was a was a drinker and just kind of started feeling less. And, um, and you know, it was tough moving to a new place when you're 12, 13. It's tough enough as it is, but um, things were kind of tough, you know. Uh, uh, Did that make you feel when you knew that people around you knew that your dad was drinking? Well, you know, uh, you didn't have people over. You know, we had to stay at the store. It, it made me feel uh, there was a lot of shame, as you know, a lot of shame. Family dynamics, you know, um, you know, it felt different. You know, other people uh, felt like uh, it was a family secret. It was a family secret, but you kind of felt people kind of knew that, you know, uh, your family wasn't this wasn't the same. My my brother, who was a little bit two years older, I mean, he rebelled a lot worse. Um, and then I was kind of I want to say I was a forgotten child. But if anyone has done anything with treatment or figure out how that is, there's certain children take certain roles, and I I just you know, wanted to do stuff that didn't cause my mom any more hassle. Um, so it was, yeah, it was difficult, you know. Um, so in 1980, you know, things were so tough. And then so luckily we had a kind of a, a um, convenience store chain bought out the liquor store, grocery store. It was a small store part. We kept the trailer part. Um but still, things were kind of tough, you know, multiple dry out periods. My dad went into treatment. He never, I think he went to a few meetings and so, but, you know, he'd always have periods of dryness where he'd go four to six or eight months of being dry. But then, you know, there'd be that thing where you'd find bottles here and there. And then you had that realization he was drinking again, just the sadness and disappointment and the constant fear that he was going to die, you know, it was just really tough as a kid growing up and just the embarrassment of it. Um, and just as a teenager, it was really tough just feeling different, you know, compared to everyone else. And I think I could tell that was kind of that start when I became a teenager, just my own disease. And I think about how I felt different, you know, and started to feel less than at that time point also, um, and my other brothers that were, Two years younger, I had a brother that went away to pharmacy school that was, you know, was really smart, 
you know, everyone always looked up to him. He was a good looking guy, you know, had a kind of a cool sports car. People always looked up to him as being really smart. Then the brother that was two years older than me was a really good football player, um, uh, was recruited by Michigan and Michigan State, you know, uh, Pittsburgh, you know, and everyone always saw him as the, uh, you know, uh, sports dude. And um, so naturally, as a teenager, you compare yourself to them. So I just kind of felt a little bit, I started doing that. I could always felt less than, you know, uh, other people. Um, and it's just normal stuff with teenagers, but I think that I could just have that complex of, of feeling less than. So then I turned 15 and I got exposed. Uh, I got exposed to uh, my first drug. And that was like the same time I got exposed, exposed to my first um, drink too, but my first drug. So growing up Catholic, uh, many of you people who, or Catholic on here, and this is no knock on being uh, Catholic because I'm still practicing today, but, you know, your mom always, you know, you always had to go to church, you know, and a lot of people with any religion, but you always hoped that, you know, uh, she'd always forget that there was church time, but she never did, you know, and always got us up and we always went and, um, and you know, church as a teenager is pretty boring. And, um, and, uh, and I remember I had this, I had this really bad cough and cold and I got um, prescribed uh, some cough medicine with codeine in it uh, called Actifed C and I took it as prescribed before church one time and um, and I remember as plain as day as church was never so uh, exciting <laughs> I was listening <laughs> to the priest talk and singing along and um, and all those feelings of uh, insecurity and uh, uh, less than and, and inferiority all kind of went away and everything that was boring kind of way and I and in my mind I knew whatever was in this you know in this cough medicine that had a little sticker with a with a drowsy eye on it uh, I wanted to get whatever was in that um, and then later that year I also got exposed to alcohol uh, at a party at another friend who who's not with us anymore. Uh, he had the same disease that, that I have. And uh, his dad was an alcoholic also, a very abusive alcoholic. But I was at a party at his house and got exposed to some, I think gin and, or no, it was slow gin and I don't know, seven up and, and, uh, and a similar feeling as the, as the, as the coding cough medicine, but I didn't like how it kind of made us so uncoordinated. But anyway, so 15 was that time frame where I knew it was whatever, I was feeling emotionally, whatever chemically, something on the outside can change my mood and all those feelings of inferiority left. Um, so then from that not, that time on, even with all that stuff that was going on, my dad was still drinking uh, off and on. Um, you know, uh, I found myself starting to uh, kind of seek out things like that you know so drinking was part of it uh, i didn't drink too much because everyone you didn't want to get in trouble with sports i was a pretty good sports star i, I found rock and roll i started playing music in a band um uh so i was playing music in a band i was a i wasn't as good as my brother john but i was still pretty good as a baseball player and a football player and got you know i did really well with that um and so I couldn't, didn't want to drink too much because I didn't want to get 
trouble with sports, but I started seeking out people's uh, medicine cabinets. Anything that had a little had a little uh, eye on it, a little drowsy eye, I, I found myself looking for. So I started uh, you know, looking at people's cabinets and, and kind of taking you know people's pills and stuff like that. Um, I had a girlfriend whose dad had a, a bad back situation, and I was taking some of his narcotic pain pills and. This kind of went on through high school um, with some partying, but looking for things to get out of myself. So, um, 18, I was getting ready to graduate. What am I going to do? You know, um, my dad said, well, you know, maybe you ought to consider. And for first, I thought I wanted to be an accountant because I was really good with numbers. I, I did. I, I graduated like a 3.1, you know. I was able to use, I was blessed with some pretty good at school. And I wanted to be an accountant, so I took an accountant class, but man, that was kind of boring. And my dad's like, well, why don't you go into pharmacy like your brother, you know? And he brought home these big, heavy books like this one right here. And I'm like, no, that seemed like an awful lot of studying, you know? And they were really heavy. And then I took a chemistry and biology class. I really liked chemistry. And I thought, then I had a friend of mine who was a neighbor of one of my best friends was going to pharmacy. And I thought, well, I don't know if it was a conscious decision or a subconscious decision, but I thought, well, if he's going to go into it, I'm going to go into it too. So I decided to go into pharmacy. And um, so I went into pharmacy. I, I, uh, I played uh, some college baseball as I was going to pharmacy. And, and that helped with some of those feelings of inferiority, you know, um, was able to do that. Um, so I went into pharmacy school. I got accepted to pharmacy school, went up to um, my undergraduate pharmacy. Um, and then I got a job in the hospital as I was in pharmacy school. And the, and then when you learn in pharmacy that, you know, there are certain drugs that are controlled, you know, they have a C on them, you know, on the bottles. And C5 is the least abused drugs. And C2s are the drugs that are the most abused drugs. And I found like my second day working as an intern in the pharmacy in the hospital, found myself looking at those particular drugs. And I knew those were controlled drugs. And about the third day of me working in the hospital, I found myself starting to divert um, those drugs in the hospital, you know, um, because I, you know, once I used them, remember, I knew what was kind of made me feel different. Any of those things I just started I didn't use every day, but I used every so often, you know, because work was kind of uh, boring. I kind of had, a, I had an extra vertebrae in my back, so I would use that as an excuse because standing up. Um, I partied some. I joined a fraternity that was pharmacy fraternity, and we partied some, you know, but couldn't party all the time because pharmacy school is very hard to kind of get through. Um, you know, and I had, a, I had a serious girlfriend, and, uh, you know, she didn't know I was using off and on, but... Um, but all this through time, you know, my dad was still drinking off and on. And I worried a lot about my parents. You know, my parents were older. Um, but I always had that fear of, uh, you know, my parents, you know, passing away. It was always that fear of my you know, sickness of my dad and all those type of things. So as time went on, you know, when I worked in the hospital every other weekend. Um, and I would just take from the hospital and use when I worked. But I never took any, you know, the first couple of years, I never took any drugs back with me to the pharmacy school, you know. Um, because, you know, if you did that, then you were, you know, you were, you were bad. I was more recreational, I told myself. So, and um, I didn't drink every night, you know. Um, 
can I, you know, my disease had not progressed yet. Um, but I partied some. So fast forward to my last year in pharmacy school, I found myself telling myself that, you know, I can't see myself being 50 years old, you know, working as a pharmacist, you know, taking drugs and using drugs. You just, that's not, you can't see yourself doing that. So I, I decided to stop uh, cold turkey um, on my own. And, uh, and I was able to do that for about six or eight weeks in the spring before I graduated. And I found my drinking started to increase. I started, you know, I was drinking more, partying pretty hard in the, in the, in the spring. You know, the, I changed addictions. I mean, I must have been drinking probably four or five nights a week as that, you know, as we know about this disease is it basically just changes. And then uh, there was a, then this big occurrence happened that, you know, uh, the bottom fell out. So the spring of 1989, you know, I had a, a little brother in the fraternity. We had brothers and stuff. This guy kind of partied hard with us, you know. He, his parents owned this chain of pharmacies in Chelsea, Michigan. Um, he was telling his parents he was going to get into pharmacy school as a pre-farm, and come to find out, he was failing out, and uh, he was so full of shame and guilt. I believe that you know his brother's actually is in the program now, um, but before. He, I believe he probably had this disease and he was so full of shame and guilt that um, I was at the hospital, but he ended up hanging himself um, in the fraternity house because he couldn't deal with telling his parents that he wasn't getting into pharmacy school. And I have heard about, they called me at the hospital and I found out that and just the emotional dealing with that was so much that I just started picking up using again. And then uh, and it just it started all back over again. And then that was the time where I started basically using, you know, every day. You know, it wasn't just on the weekends or whatever. Just so that what happened was hard on you, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, so it was it was tough. I didn't find him, but it was just really tough going to the funeral. He was a, a close friend of mine, you know, just classic part of uh, if you think about recovery is there was no support system. I never you know, I didn't tell anyone that I had a drug problem. I didn't, you know, I, many times I was going to tell my girlfriend I had a drug problem, but, you know, just the shame and guilt of what would people think, you know, I felt like I was the only person in the world. Um, so I graduated pharmacy school. I, there was no job for me at the hospital. So I got a job at one of the retail pharmacies. Um, and again, thinking, God, I can't, you know, I can't be doing this, but you know, uh, this is like now we're talking uh, January or this is July, uh, 1989, and then I had to, you know, when you're when you're a graduate pharmacist, a lot of times they'll have you work at different places till they find their stores. So I would go to these stores and I would divert, uh, you know, and at this time I started, you know, I started having some trouble with my relationship with my girlfriend, so it really compounded, you know, the emotional pain. I had no no ability to deal with any emotional pain or I had no uh, skills to deal with any of that type of stuff. And um, and that's when I started using these the schedule two narcotics, stuff like the Percodan and the Percocets and um, and drugs that were a little bit harder or all orally. And um, 
And it came to the time where it really at that time, I only basically felt good about for about 20 minutes in the morning and the rest of it was just chasing the dragon. I did drink some during that time, but um, I was always afraid of mixing it too much. So I'd work at all these different hospitals or I mean, at these different pharmacies, you know, again, thinking, you know, I'm going to quit tomorrow, but I never could quit. Um, then I thought, man, I got to got to leave this store or leave this company and try to get back in the hospital because you know, they're eventually going to find out. Um, and I remember um, uh, about, so about two weeks, uh, this is probably will be about December, right around Christmas time. I remember sitting, so I was taking things to get up in the morning. I was taking amphetamines and, and narcotics to get up in the morning and then taking sleepers at night. And, you know, again, I'm, I was 23 years old. And I remember laying in bed, you know, just feeling horrible. And I remember just crying out to God, you know, you know, please help. You know, I'm just, I'm dying here. I just, I, I need some type of help. I'm just so sad. I just, you know, nothing's working. I mean, I try to like tell myself I'm going to quit. And then by one o'clock, shift you know the shift to start at nine by one o'clock i'd be using it again you know it was just horrible um i remember you know crying out this is like december 25th 1989 you know just crying out please help you know and you know in two weeks he sent some angels you know but there weren't angels that you that you think of and then you think of biblically you know they, they did not have, um, you know, wings and they didn't have flowing white, you know, gowns or anything like that. These angels, you know, had blue uniforms on and they had things on the top of their car, you know, um, and they, they put you in handcuffs. Those are the angels that I had. So, uh -huh. so January 10th, 1990, I went into work. Um, and I drove up and I saw this security car from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which was the uh, headquarters for this company I worked for. And I knew it was over. I knew, I knew that basically it was over. And so I went in there and I saw the guy and he says, you're in trouble. And I'm like, yeah, I know. So I went in and it was just like a big relief off my back, you know. And he says, Well tell you know, tell us everything and we'll go easy on you, you know. So basically I basically did a fist step with the guy with, with regards to all the, you know, um things I had taken. And um unfortunately, you know, what was kind of tough about all that is I worked at all these different stores throughout my time working for the company, which was about oh seven or eight months, but there were other people that were diverting. So I got like blamed for things I didn't even get blamed for. But, you know, but at the time, I just remember the feeling of relief that finally the secret was over. But I didn't really know how much trouble I was in. So I remember going home after, you know, they let me go home after I admitted to all this particular stuff and sitting down and writing this big, long letter to like my parents and uh, family members and girlfriends, just basically right now what, what I had been living through since I was 15 uh, for eight years. And um, 
And it was such a lonely feeling in a sense. I was just like probably 10, 30 in the morning. Everyone's at work and I'm sitting in my apartment, you know. So I finally told them all. It was a big, you know, big shock to them and my girlfriend and, you know, no one kind of knew. Um, the next day, you know, they, the police officers came and took me to state police. They took me down to the county building, you know, because they arrested me and, uh, uh, and, you know, I got brought in to be arraigned. Um, and I, and it was kind of a bonus there that the, the TV cameras were there to catch someone who got caught making a crystal meth lab. But then they got a bonus. They got me being brought in, marched, <laughs> marched in, you know, frog marched in also. And I didn't really think that the cameras were live primarily because I didn't see no red light. But you know, I got brought in and, uh, you know, got arraigned with multiple felonies, you know, for having, you know, um, you know, possessing prescription meds without, you know, having a prescription. And I got put up in the third floor of the county building and, um, and that night, you know, got to see myself, you know, on the, you know, in the, you know, the news, you know, kind of six o'clock news with 11 other close friends, you know, and they, they, they went crazy calling me a star and all that type of stuff. But that was, that was the bottom, you know, going to detox with a half inch mattress, you know, with no box spring, with a toilet next to you that there's no, you know, a stainless steel toilet. Um, then I realized uh, the consequences of my use and um, and just thinking, wow, you know, you know what 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 is going on? You know, my whole life has changed. You know, um, so it took about three weeks for me to get out of there to go to treatment. I talked to a lady um, that was for pharmacist help and pharmacist. She says, you know, her name is Marlene. She was great, and she she's like, well, you know, you'll never be able to drink again. Too. And I'm like, I remember thinking to myself, you know, what the hell are you talking about? You know, it's like if I get married or whatever, I can't have a drink, you know, drinking, drinking never um, end me up in jail. And I remember just thinking that in my, in my mind, you know, and I didn't really say much to her, you know. So within three weeks, I was lucky I got out. I had to plead to like two counts of three, two counts of like multiple felonies to get out of get out of jail and go to treatment in grand rapids we had a uh, a long-term treatment uh, facility for healthcare professionals so i was really lucky so i went for four months of long-term treatment um i can't say enough about it thing was none of it was covered uh my insurance so it cost about 20 grand back in 1990 uh, wow that's a lot of money that's one yeah. of the problems um i find with people getting into rehab, it's just so cost prohibitive. I mean, if you don't have that insurance, like me personally, I had had something happen. So I had a DUI, therefore, for some reason, that qualified me with the state of New Jersey for them to pay for my rehab. Without well, that, I couldn't afford it. Now, if I would have said it was alcohol primarily, then it would have been paid for. But because it was drugs, it wasn't paid for. But Luckily, my parents, you know, my parents weren't rich people, you know, my had blue collar and, you know, but they had some money, they, you know, they lent me the money, you know, to, to do it. I just remember being so worried about the cost. I remember my first sponsor said to me, and I just shared this on a, that recovery page, I said, you know, I remember him telling me, you know what, I had 
that and I had restitution and lawyer bills. And he said, you know what? Bills will get paid. You know, and I and I remember feeling some relief that it did, they did get paid, you know, it just took some time. Um uh, uh and so with that, I remember going to long-term treatment. It was it was awesome. And I remember sitting there, you know, because I had some alcohol denial when I got there. And um, obviously, and I remember sitting around all these people. And this is back in the time where they did pay for a lot of, there was a lot of people in treatment, you know, because um, Medicaid, I think, paid for a lot. There was a lot of people there. And I remember a lot of these people were all were there for like their second, third, fifth, seventh treatment. And I remember thinking, F, you know, pardon my French. I'm thinking, I don't want to go through this again, you know. I remember, uh, I remember a uh, counselor said, "Well, you know, you don't have to relapse. You don't have to go through it again." So I remember talking to all these people, and I asked them, you know, tell me about you. How did how did you what happened, you know? And a lot of these people said, "Well, you know, my primary drug was in marijuana. My primary drug was crack, and I started drinking again. It took me back to crack." Or people would say, you know, my primary drug was, you know, Xanax or whatever. And then I started drinking again. I went, to, went back to Xanax or I became an alcoholic and the light bulb went on. You know, it's not really what your primary drug is. It's whatever you're doing that changes your mood. And then the light bulb went on that, you know what? Marlene is right. You know, I don't want to do anything. You know, my dad's an alcoholic. Um, I don't want to do anything that's going to, you know, wake up that gorilla, being trained to that gorilla that I have. I'm chained to a gorilla and I don't want to do anything to wake up that gorilla. And then a few years later, I did do, you know, kind of an alcohol, um, uh, kind of an alcohol inventory. And, you know, when I drank, I did a lot of things relationship-wise that I wouldn't normally do that I caused a lot of wreckage with relationships. So, so yeah, I am an alcoholic. So I, I call myself a recovering alcoholic addict. But back then, for some reason, because my dad was an alcoholic, I didn't want to say I was an alcoholic at 23. But so I don't want to spend too much time just on the drunker log or the you know, addict out, you know, log. But, you know, I, so, you know, I, so I got out of long term treatment. I was grateful for that. You know, I, I, I got out a month, you know, and I went in front of the judge and they, they sentenced me to a year, uh, five months, you know, in and six months in a halfway house. So I, we got on a work release, so I, I started pushing a lawnmower about 300 yards from the pharmacy that I got uh, busted at. So I got to drive by the pharmacy every day and you know mowing mowing lawns and and uh, uh, you know planting trees and digging ditches and and all that type of stuff in my hometown. You know, um, so I had to face all that type of stuff. I used to have people drive by and say, "Hey, how's that? How's that education working out for you?" You know, and and, and yelling out stuff at me and uh you know so i had to deal with a lot of that shame and guilt stuff right away and it wasn't easy um then i had to spend five months in the halfway house uh you know in the tough part of town you know and doing that type of stuff you know and that was that was good that was good humility for me um so i went in front i did that i went in front of the licensing board pharmacy you know and because they suspended my license they originally wanted to revoke my license but you know because i went to long-term treatment i had some advocates they said you know people do recover you know even in 1990 you know the physician that is, was an alcoholic addict said you know you know long-term treatment works you know and uh 
you shouldn't revoke this guy's license, you know, you know, suspend it and see how he does. And um, it's the long and short of it. Uh, so I spent two and a half years pushing along more. Uh, I did a lot of public service. I went to the pharmacy school, told my story. Um, schools told my story, you know, started working with others, you know, uh, working with other healthcare professionals, working with others, you know, around the program. Um, and got my license back, you know. Um, uh, but, you know, it took a while to get a job, you know. People in the area, you know, when you're when you're on the front page of the news and front page, you know, you know, people are not so excited to to, to hire us back, you know, right away. Kind of like Norm from Cheers. I can't remember Woody Harrelson did <laughs> Cheers. You know, you're gonna let the guy in the bartender, you know, start working, you know, around that type of stuff. So basically, how I told the guy, I told my story. I said, you know what, you know, it's kind of cool is with me, you know, with the urine drops, you're gonna know for sure if I'm using it or not at any time. You can get it. You know, urine drop. Plus, the benefits you got someone who's in recovery. You know, you're gonna have someone who's grateful to be working. You know, I use it as a positive. I didn't use it as a negative. And um, you know, eventually, I did get a job. You know, it, it took some time, and there were some struggles there because times were tough. I was living on credit cards, and money was tight, and I had to live on twenty bucks a week. You know, with one slice of that. You know that. That, that ham and you know whatever you get at Admiral or this gas station, you know, that little processed meat, you know, and a dollar bread, you know, and the little dubbies, you know, that's what, I, that's what I had for lunch and stuff, you know. But you know, I grew up that way. I grew up with not a lot of money. My wife grew up with not a lot of money, and uh, so I'm I was used to that. You know, I grew up with seven kids, so I was able to survive. Um, so I got a good job, you know, and then. Uh, the long and short of it, about 10 years after I started working. So I worked, I was able to work in the drugstore around those drugs, you know, that, with never having a thought of using. And that's through this program, you know, I prayed about it, you know, uh, never had a thought of using. Now with that said, you know, playing music in the bars, you know, I, I still play music. I started playing music. I'm a musician today. I have had some thoughts of uh, you know, not not very often, but you know, I've had some thoughts of drinking more than I've had thoughts of using. Um, but I'll talk about that, and we're probably going a little bit long. Uh, and I apologize. Um, no, no, this is this is this is what we do. Okay, well, I, I, I sometimes go a little bit long, but anyway, so so about ten years in of doing doing what I was doing, working in the drugstore, I, I decided that I wanted to do a little bit more, and. Um, I said, I want to go back and get my doctorate in pharmacy because I wanted to work more than just uh, community pharmacy. And so I applied at the University of Washington out in Seattle. Um, and I got the application. The first application says you've ever been committed for a felony. Have you ever committed a felony? So I threw it away. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I, you know, the shame piece kicked in. I'm like, I, you know, and I talked to other folks in the program. And I said, you know what? I've had to deal with that with, you know, getting, throwing out certain licenses and stuff. And you know what? I had to do the same thing that you did with your, you know, when you got your job, you know, use it as a badge, you know. So I did that. I got went and got myself another application. I filled it out and I, and I put that. I used that as a badge of honor. You know, at that time I had, let's see, 10 years of recovery. Um, and I used it as a positive and, uh, Come to find out, I got accepted. And they, what they, what the felony piece was, it was about basically, 
you know, more like sex offenders and stuff, being around people, you know, uh, that were other patients and stuff because you're working with patients. But, you know, there was a lot of fear there. There was a lot of fear of not of being rejected because of this disease. And there was fear of, was I going to be able academically be able to do it, you know? And then going all the way across the country, you know, I was a little bit afraid. Um, but it was about being uncomfortable, you know? So I was accepted the program, went out to Seattle. It was really awesome, you know? Uh, took me three years to complete that program, got my doctorate. Um, started working in a physician's office, taking care of patients. Um, decided I want to do more work with research and development, you know, uh, I got, in 2004, I got an offer for this really cool company to work where I wanted to, you know, and then they, um, they made me an offer and they said, you know what, we're going to do a background check. And we, you know, for you to get accepted, we got to do a background check, you know, and I'm like, holy shit, you know, here we go again, you know. So as soon as I accept the offer, I fire it off. Because see, with these type of jobs, you don't, you don't fill out an application that says, do you, have you ever been convicted of a felony? You know, these type of jobs, you know, they interview you, you know, um, and then once they make you an offer, you know, which is, you know, significant, then they, then they do a background check on you to make sure it goes through. So filled out the same thing, you know, and they said, well, let's see what the background check says. And then we'll go from there if we're going to give you the job or not, you know. And so for two weeks, I had to wait for the background check to come through and um, talk about turning stuff over. And I remember that two weeks was so tough because this was a job I really, really wanted. Um, I really, really, really wanted. And uh, I just remember just being really afraid that God was not going to, um, was not going to give me what I wanted, you know. I was, it was really hard. It was really hard. I remember walking. This is a job I really, really wanted. And uh, supposedly, and it took a little bit longer than they said because they actually had to send someone to Muskegon County to actually get some of it because it had been so long. They actually had to like look up some of the stuff. And um, so the background check cleared. And, you know, the company appreciated the honesty, you know. Um, they didn't have any problem with. You know, hiring a convicted felon, drug felon, you know, um, because they love the honesty. It's about the honesty and, you know, long-term recovery. You know, they, they hired me on what I could do for them rather than what happened in 1990. Now, since then, I had to go through probably two or three of those since because I'd take another job, you know, um, you know, and it's, it's been just been great from that aspect. Personally, otherwise, you know, I, I made mention, you know, I, I met my wife, um, I was two years sober, you know, I lost that girlfriend, remember, I told, mentioned about having a relationship, you know, um, when I was in jail, sorry to tell you to go back, uh, when I was in jail, you know, I remember being on the phone, and she was like, this is a girl I dated for four years, and just a wonderful woman, you know, girl at the time, she was 19, I was 23, and she's like, well, you haven't been honest with me, you know, about you're using drugs. Is there anything else you, you know, haven't been honest with me about, you know? And I was such into the fifth step mode, even though I wasn't working a program uh, at the time, that whole saying of, you know, the truth will set you free. You know, I told her about some things about being with other women at the time and, you know, and, and 
and the truth was, you know, she set me free. <laughs> you know, so um, so going through treatment, going to jail. I mean, I was you know single, and it was very painful to lose that relationship. But you know, that's the way it was. You know, luckily, um, after I got out of the halfway house, you know, I was sober about a year, and I met, I met my wife. This woman actually was friends with my girlfriend at the time. I had known her before in that church, and then. We started dating, um, and she didn't really drink around me that much, but a couple times she was, and, and I joked about, you know, maybe she needs AA, and um, a couple times, you know, she had drank and, and had blackouts and stuff, and she knew I was going to meetings and liked what I was, and uh, so she started going to meetings, you know, a couple of years after I was going to meetings, and she's been in the program ever since, so... Uh, uh, we've been married coming up on 26 years in November. We've got three children. Long time. Yeah, 19, 16, and 15. I, we, we both have told them all uh, abbreviated, basically, first step stories of all of our, you know, what's going on. We're talking about the disease, alcohol, and the genetics behind all that. Um, I'm grateful to be able to tell them some of that stuff, even the jail stuff. And the, and the felony stuff and it's a little shocking for kids at first but i'd rather have them hear it from us um still work a program today uh still go to meetings today uh still tell my story whenever possible that's why when you when you when you um put that invitation out uh, be, uh, i try to do that because you know I tell you what, it was awfully dark sitting in that jail cell because I didn't think I'd ever be able to work again, practice again, uh, you know, all that educational stuff. Because at the time, you know, money and all those things are really important, you know, and, and, uh, and you know, it's all, I mean, not that those things aren't important because you need stuff, stuff that's survived, but, you know, those are such a small part of what AA and, and, and this 12 steps have given me ever since. You know, so I try to pay back whatever I can. Um, and so, so life is really good today. And, uh, and uh, I, I owe it all to God, uh, it's 12 steps to fellowship and uh, the people that are, has given it to me. So, so that is, that's the gist of it. I don't know any other questions, thoughts you have in regards to that or, no, you were a great storyteller. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. My last question, which I ask everybody before we go, is do you have any advice for people watching or listening? So the advice I'd have if you're early in the recovery is, you know, get connected with your local group along with Zoom. You know, try to find out who your local group is. You know, a couple sayings that get people fired up, you know, you know, meeting makers make it. And the sense being is that you need to do more than meetings, but try to get connected with people uh, as much as possible because loneliness will kill us. You know, loneliness will kill me. Um, second thing is stick with the winner, you know, find out who has got some recovery, you know, um, and what you, you know, if you, they have what you, what you like, find out what they did, you know, um, get a sponsor. You know, um, I know it's really scary. I remember asking my first sponsor, it's scary to do, but give us someone you can get with and talk about stuff and throw stuff out, you know. Um, and then, you know, get in the books and work the steps, you know. Um, uh, 
you know, the first, my first year, I worked on the three-step waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. <laughs> no. waltz, you know? And then after that, you know, I, I remember getting out and doing a four-step, you know, and then following up. I mean, I had the big book and the 12 and 12. Um, and I was sitting at the beach over here and just writing it down. And then within a week later, I did the fifth step, you know. And then with that, I had a nice layer of things that I could see all my six character uh, character defects, and then I was able to work on them there. Um, and then the seventh step, and then obviously writing it all down, I had a nice list of people I needed to already have that they could go on the next step. You know, so um, there's a you had one question that kind of extrapolated with a bunch of things on there, but um, just stay connected and uh, uh, you know. This too, you know, these things will happen. They just they do take some time, you know. Um, just be involved. Be like yourself right here, you know. Do a little thing. If someone asks you to do something, someone asks you to speak, or someone asks, say yes first. And then if some reason you can't do it, just go back and say, Well, by the way, I said yes, but you know, it doesn't work out my schedule right now. Can I do it later? If someone asks you to speak, just say yes. You know, and then if it doesn't happen. You know, if you can't do it, then say, well, by the way, I can't do it. Can we do it the next week? I just always say yes when I come to the program and then work out the details later. Good advice. Good advice. I like that. That's one of the things they uh, they say in life also. Kind of just, just say yes. Figure out the rest later. But when you have something new that could be new and exciting, just say yes. I've heard that before. So did you have... Anything else you want to add? Boy, I think I've, I've, I've said enough. I've only taken like three breaths, I think, in this whole, uh, this whole interview process. One thing I want to say is I appreciate you doing this type of stuff. You know, this is kind of cool stuff that, um, you know, I don't know how many people, you know, thank you for you know, your time and your effort, you know, and doing service work. This is a sense of service work and uh, takes a lot of work to set all this up. You know, and getting people together and returning, you know, messages and all this type of stuff. So, so no one has told told you lately. We, you know, you are carrying a message, and uh, and you know, it, it, you know, it, it is appreciated. So, thank you. Thank you very much. That means a lot to me. It really does. Great. I try my hardest. So, where can people find this stuff? I don't know. Where can I find other stuff? So as far as I was just about to give our sales pitch. So for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, you can go below and give us a like. Also subscribe. And to answer Ron's question, you can find us at www.addicts-anonymous.com. We have plenty of resources on the webpage as well as our approved literature tab where we have a ton of free articles. You can also find us on Reddit, Twitter, Instagram. We have a Facebook group. Also, we are on TikTok. So there's a bunch of platforms you can find us. That's all we have for today. I hope you like what you saw and heard. And until next time.